We're reading Ephesians this quarter. We're starting, uh, this is the second week in our, the second half of Ephesians. And what we said is this, is the first half, one through three. Ephesians really is, is the structure of the spiritual life of a Christian. Um, actually shows up in the literary structure of the book of Ephesians. And that there are three chapters about Jesus' love for us. And the only command given in the first three chapters is remember, remember, remember. And then the second half, starting in chapter 4, is then how Jesus' love transforms us. And so this is where there's exhortation. This is where the life of someone in Jesus um, is laid out and we are called to it. And so we're in the second week of that. And I want to say this before I read the passage. is In verse 23, there's a word... Um, it says, we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And this word is in the present infinitive, and that's important because it means this. And you should be reminding yourself of this, not just tonight, but in all of life. Um, that word in present infinitive means that it's ongoing process. That everybody in here is in process. Everybody in here is in different places. Um, nobody is at the end of their process. And so, it is okay to be where you are and to be processing things from the place that you're in. And this renewing um, and, and this life of Christian growth is a continual process. And we're so eager to get to the end of things. And the end of things, the end of this process will not come in this life. So that actually gives us the capacity to be a little bit calmer um, in the way we actually seek what our new life looks like. So, say that. I'm going to begin Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about Him and you were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed, continually renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I want to be these things and I'm not... And I know in this room there are people who want to be these things and aren't. And there are people who don't know if they want to be these things. Um, and figuring out what it looks like to become a new person, to be a better person, to be who you've called us to be, is confusing and it's stressful and it seems to be guilt-laden. But I pray as we consider this text and as we consider the words of your servant Paul, dear Lord, that we would find that this process, while it is a process and while it involves work, um, 
it is sweet and it is good. And that we'd be drawn to it and we would find it home and ourselves at home as we begin to engage in it. Be with us, dear God. Teach us from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So, 12 years ago at this time, this moment 12 years ago, Elizabeth and I were actually two months into our dating relationship, which actually put us four months out from engagement, um, which actually put us 10 months out from our wedding. We got married, uh, started dating December of 2002, got married January of 2003. Um, it was 2004. 1403. No, no, no. Started dating December of 2001. Married January of 2003. 13 months. All right. All right. Uh, so when you get married, at some point early on in your marriage, I suspect within the first six months, if not on the honeymoon, uh, two things dawn on you. One of them we're not going to talk about. The other one we'll talk about a little bit. The first one is dating is the worst idea we've ever had. We're not going to talk about that tonight. And then the second thing is this, no matter how in love you feel with the person you married, and there's nothing wrong with feeling in love, but no matter how in love and connected you felt with them that led you to marriage, very early on you realize, I have no idea who this person is. And um, that's okay. That's what premarital counseling is for. That's why you should live your marriage with people. It's okay. But something still happens at your wedding. And what happens in a marriage is a new binding status is declared. And so when Elizabeth and I got married, we were declared one. There was a new legal status established about us that we are one. And we are no more and no less legally one today than we were legally one 11 years ago. We're not more one, we're not less one. Our status has not changed, it has not grown, and it has not lessened. It was established, it's fixed, it's the change. Now, our status having been established, here's the question. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before. Are we, in another sense, much more one today than we, are, than we were one 11 years ago? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. We've grown together in... Our emotions, we've grown together in our spiritual lives, in our psychological lives, in our social lives. There's been a oneness that has grown between us over the past decade that goes far beyond the kind of oneness that we were experiencing in the first days and weeks of our marriage. But here's again, here's what I want to draw out. Has our status of oneness ever really changed? It hasn't. Our experience of oneness has. This is really important, and that, that, if you get this one point, do you have the hope of not being radically frustrated and figuring out what it means to be a Christian, if you get this? What marriage is, marriage is actually growing into the status that is established at your wedding. That's what marriage is. A status is established, we're one. The rest of marriage is growing into that oneness. That is your relationship with God. You are established in Christ at the moment that you repented and came to faith in Jesus, that you found out you were justified, that He is yours and you are His, signified in your baptism, you're forgiven, you're secured and loved. Your status is secured and it will not change. You are in Christ. You are covered. 
you are forgiven. What life now, what it is, is it's actually growing into the reality of that status. It's actually growing into the union of Christ that was actually declared at your moment of salvation. Within the gospel, we've been saying this, and we're going to say it several more times. You don't try to become the right kind of person so that you'll be accepted. You're accepted, and that gives you the capacity to begin to be a different person. And order is everything. And it's not just kind of an inconvenience or a confusion to get that order mixed up. It is the difference between life and death. Because one process, trying to become a different person so that you'll get accepted, is fearful and it's insecure. It's actually full of pride as well. The other process, understanding God accepts you in Jesus and then seeking out the transformed life, that's actually a process that's full of gratitude and it's full of joy and it's full of security. These are two radically different lives if you get the process wrong. And what Paul is doing tonight is Paul is beginning to call us into this new life. Having established the first three chapters, he's saying, here now is what your new life looks like. This is what it looks like to be married. Your established status being set and not being threatened. This is your new life. And what he does is he takes us through a process. Verses 17 through 24, he says, now this is who you were, and I want you to understand who you were apart from Christ. And there in verses 25 on, he says, and this is who you are to become. And so he reminds us, he starts right with now. Now is in, the, in Paul's letters is just like the word therefore. Now means something happened prior and now things are different. Just like therefore means something happened prior, therefore things are different. And he's saying there's a change. And so he wants to go back. As say this now, you can't walk any longer as Gentiles. And he's using the term Gentiles to refer to people who didn't know God. That was a common, the way that word's commonly used. And he says, life apart from God is futile. Right? They're darkened in their understanding of the world. They're separate from God. We lived in ignorance, unaware of the true nature of reality. And this is what he's saying. This is, I hope I can communicate this point well. I hope you can kind of grab onto it. When he uses that language of they're futile in their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from God, and ignorant, he's saying this, we don't, apart from God, we don't interpret the world the right way. We see the same world, But we each craft our own personal interpretation of the facts. And this is what I mean by that. The the same historical facts sit out there for everybody. So, two people with equal intellectual ability who study the same amount of time walk into the same midterm and get the same grade. They don't say they both get a B plus, which is terrifying for most of y'all, right? For all the Christians, B plus is pretty great. But, y'all get that? No? Okay. Anyways. um, I mean, they're just not hitting, are they? Um, two people, equal ability, equal amount of study time, walk into the same midterm, both get a B plus, and they can have two radically different interpretations. Right? Same exact reality. One says, man, a B plus is great. I'm glad I put the time in that I put time in. I didn't slough off. I worked hard, but I also made time for other things. I want to be a well-rounded person. This is great. The other person, right, because they have an interpretive grid, a definition of reality that looks different, is a B-plus is completely unacceptable. I don't know who I am anymore. I've got to change majors. Right? 
I've gained weight. Historical fact, right? One person is, I've gained weight, I'm ugly, I'm going to be lonely my entire life, right? Another person is, I've gained weight, the chili cheese fries were totally worth it. <laughs> you know? One, when, apart from God, this is what we do. We, we craft an interpretation of the world and we craft our own personal narrative. The way we all understand ourselves is in story. We all concoct and understand identity through story. And if your story has no ending or has no meta-narrative that involves God, that there is more to this life than simply this world, then you're going to interpret all these events and this brief amount of time you have in this reality a certain way, and it will be terrifying. Because if there is no God and your status and your identity and your security and, and who you are is not defined by Him, then what you'll do is you'll latch on to write worldly things that don't last, that can't establish security and say, these things make me up. Being a Stanford student, that makes me. Not being lonely, that makes me. Getting a bid here, that makes me okay. Getting into this housing group, that makes me okay. Getting to Goldman, that makes me okay. You'll, you'll start to establish identity and tell stories about yourself and interpret the world through a framework that gives you no hope. For anything lasting. And our interpretations are really complicated narratives. And and they're created by the stories that we've lived. They're created by our families. They're created by our cultures. They're created by our own hearts. Where we take the events of our life. And we craft a narrative. And then we decide. Are we okay with that? Or are we not? And it's futile apart from God. We can't interpret the world the right way apart from God. Apart from God, failures are a disaster. With God, failures are actually processes in which He's actually making us, right? Apart from God, loneliness is death. This is really serious, and I realize some of y'all know people who've done this, and I do too. What suicide is, is it's an interpretation of reality that says, because I don't have these things, or because these things have happened to me, I interpret my life as no longer worth living. Right? People who've committed suicide have very similar stories to a lot of us, but they have a different interpretation of what those stories mean. So we have this complex narrative by which we interpret events, and apart from God, it's a terrifying process of trying to find lasting connection and lasting significance in things that don't last. And Louis C.K. Is, is, is like a modern prophet. If you haven't seen his stand-up, he's incredible. He understands the human condition better than like a lot of preachers. I'm not going to let that come out on the podcast, but... He said, I was watching him on Conan the other, uh, on a clip the other day, and he talks about it. He says, there's this emptiness. He says, this is why we, we get on our, our, our cell phones and we, we do the Twitter and the texting. He says, because there's an emptiness inside of here that we're all trying to hide from and run from. But every now and then it sneaks out and it confronts you that you're just alone and you just live for a while and die. And Louis C.K. is actually embracing, like, don't you get life is futile? And Paul's saying the same thing. That's what life apart from God would feel like. And here's the real big kicker, too. Where did that come from? Our futile thinking, the fact that we can't interpret reality the right way, we can't understand it. And this is really huge. And this has been changed. Reading this in this letter, reading on this of the past three or four years has really changed me. He listens, he lists it, futile in their minds, dark in the understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that's in them. End of verse 18, he tells us the source of our futile thinking and our darkened understanding. 
due to their hardness of heart. This is what a lot of us think. Maybe all of us. We think that we're thinking creatures first and feeling or loving creatures second. That we all decide what's rational and then we set our heart on it. And the Bible says that's not true. We're actually desiring creatures first. We're lovers before we're actually thinkers. We set our heart on something and then we craft reasons to support our love. He's saying our thinking is actually warped because our hearts first didn't love the right things. Our thoughts and our reasoning is not our guide. Our hearts are. This is why you can actually have a lot of even true thoughts about God, even correct thoughts about God, and yet not be His because your heart is not attached to Him. And apart from God, our hearts are chaos. Right? Without well-ordered love, this is verse 19, we give ourselves up to sensuality, to greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. He's saying this, without a heart of rightly ordered love, which is love for God first and foremost, what are we? We're enslaved to out-of-control impulses. Life is completely out of control and we're addicted to it. Is that not true of almost all of our time, that you find yourself wanting one thing for a while, and you want it, and you want it, and you have reasons for why you want it. We all have reasons for things that we want, but those reasons come after our heart latches onto something. But then they jump around from thing to thing, because you see someone that has something else that looks better, and now you want that. And all of a sudden you're jumping from love to love to love to love. And every time you latch on to a love, you have a reason for it, But, of course, that reason fades in importance and rationality once you latch on to a new love, right? Having somebody, making just the different dreams that you have in life. Our hearts are out of control. That's actually where our bad thinking comes from. And what I want you to see is this. Do you know that you are a desiring being before you're a thinking being? Do you know that you are a desiring being before you are a thinking being? And do you know that you will not think your way to God? That what has to happen is He has to plant a new love in your heart. That means that transformation doesn't come from right thinking. It means that transformation comes from a new love being planted in our hearts. Guess what? Doing a lot of great true theology will not change you. A new love being birthed in your heart will follow that. You'll actually find reasons to back it. As well. And this is why Paul says this is not the way you learned Christ. All the commentators talk about how this is a weird phrase. This is not the way that you learned Christ. That kind of terminology, learning a person, not learning about or learning of, but learning a person, doesn't show up anywhere in any other ancient Greek. And Paul's talking about how you get to know somebody. And then he says, This is how it starts. First you heard about him, and then you moved closer to him, and you were taught in him. And then you discovered that actually He is the truth. Jesus is not someone that simply tells the truth. He Himself is actually the truth embodied. He is the all-encompassing reality. And you discovered, this is how we learned Christ, this is how you learned Christ. You discovered, not just factually, and not just intellectually, but you actually discovered experientially that He's love. 
you don't learn Christ through theological thinking. You actually learn, and you don't learn Christ by asking Him for favors. You learn Christ through repentance. It's a personal interaction in which you approach Him covered and carrying all of your foolishness and all of your sin and all of your darkened thinking and your futile life and your bad interpretation of reality and your self-loving heart. And we stop hiding and we stop justifying those things and we ask Jesus, can I be freed from these things? Can I be freed from the fact that they condemn me? Can I be free from their power in my life? Can you love me in spite of these things? And what Jesus says is what he says in Matthew 11. He says, come and rest if you are tired and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. And so in Christ you're given a new identity. And you're redeemed and you're restored and you're forgiven. And those are acts of love. And when you are loved and begin to understand the way in which Christ loves you, this is what happens. Inception. A new love, not a new thought, a new love is planted in your heart. A new love that actually grows and it's so vast and it's all-encompassing that all of a sudden you start to interpret all of reality differently. So that all of a sudden your grades are not your justification. Because you're like, oh, well, I'm justified in Jesus. I was interpreting all wrong. I thought I'm losing everything when I make bad grades. I realize, no, 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 I'm doing the best I can, and this is just the kind of person I am, but my justification and my righteousness and who I am, my identity, it's in Jesus. All of a sudden, your interpretive grid for all of reality changes. And it's almost like a light actually shines back on your life, and you had had this whole story about your former life through which you understood yourself, And all of a sudden, when this light shines, you realize that the major actor who is orienting all those events, you had never seen him, and he's been there all along. You even interpret your past in a new way. You see, oh, God's fingerprints were there all along. You were trying to tell the story of your life, and you didn't even see the main actor. And so you begin to look around your present situation, and you begin to realize that you've been interpreting your present situation all wrongly. That, that we're addicted and we're fearful and we're prideful in our pursuits because we're asking them to give us meaning. And instead, instead of letting your pursuits simply be the playground on which your good father wants you to play. It's what Stanford is. It's what your job is. It's what Lord willing your family is. It's what life is. Your father loves you. He just gave you a playground to play on. Right? But we make it our meaning-making our meaning factory. And it's horrible as a meaning-making factory. Right, And you realize, with this new interpretive grid, I can't be the same person anymore. Being loved, this is our big point for the whole semester, being loved precedes becoming lovely. This is how you came to know Christ. Order is everything. Being loved precedes becoming lovely. A lovely person. So Paul wants to establish, this is who you are apart from God. Don't you see the new framework he's given you? Don't you remember how you learned Christ? He loved you first. And so this is what fits you now. And so what happens in verse 25 is this. There's this putting off and this putting on uh, rhetoric that he uses. And he's saying, now that you have this new framework for understanding who you are, what reality is, you need to change clothes. You're not dressed for the occasion anymore. 
this life that you're kind of wearing, it no longer suits you and it doesn't actually sit, uh, uh, fit well with what's true of you because now you're in Christ and your whole reality has been transformed. So put off the old clothes and put on the new one. When you came to Stanford, this is what you dressed and looked like the first couple of months. Like someone who went to your high school. That's what you look, despite your best appearances to wear the free t-shirts, that's actually one of the main things that marks you as a freshman. You remember that? Is all the t-shirts that the freshmen get. You dress like someone that went to your high school, but this is what happened slowly and with intentionality on your part. So you were intentional about it. But because of the external influence of your new reality, you started to dress like a Stanford student. So you worked at it. There was intentionality. But it was actually authored and empowered and motivated by something outside of you saying, no, this is what this place is like now. And you're like, I want to dress like that. I I lost weight several years ago, like after our kids got a little bit bigger and everything. And I went through the phase where I didn't buy new jeans, you know. And so I was wearing, I was like cinching my belt down. You had those weird crinkles around your waistband that looked really, really odd, like you have pleated jeans or something, which is bizarre, you know. And it felt bad. And then I bought new jeans. And then life made sense. (laughs) Right? Your old life doesn't fit anymore. And so Paul walks us through five things. And this is, this is a framework Sinclair Ferguson, um, our old pastor in South Carolina, gives for these next five things. Because they're really clear. There's this putting off and this putting on. And the first thing is verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. And he's saying, this is what you've got to do now. You've got to exchange falsehood for truth. And I won't belabor this because we talked about it last week. Um, but it is interesting, the first thing Paul talks about is words. Matthew fifteen eighteen. Jesus talks about how our words actually reveal our hearts. And he talks about words later here as well. It's amazing. It is very interesting how important Paul thinks words are. But Jesus is forming a community of truth. And what that means is that we speak truth through our facades. That we are known to one another within our friendships... And we actually help each other know ourselves because we speak the truth. In Jesus' family, there no longer exists the two versions of you or three versions or four or however many you've created. The real you and the you that you want the world to see, they actually come back together when you become a truth teller. You get to be one person again. It's kind of nice. Because you know you're safe in Jesus. We stop being afraid of the truth. We also recognize that when a friend speaks the truth in love and tells us something that we don't want to hear, that they actually did a courageous thing because they spoke from conviction. And when you begin to wander into those weeds that we all do at some point, you say, well, okay, we're talking about telling the truth. Am I lying if? And you begin to kind of walk down the paths of moral ambiguity and you start to ask essentially, how much misinformation or how much withholding information can I get away with and still be truthful? Then don't you see that your heart already doesn't love the truth anymore. Once you start asking those questions, your heart is already, how much, how little truth can I get away with? And in Christ, the truth fits you and falsehood doesn't. And causes us to exchange falsehood for truth. Secondly, in verse 26 and 27, to exchange anger for control. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul says it's one of those verses 
Be angry and do not sin. What does that mean? The Bible actually clearly teaches that anger can be appropriate at times. And anger that arises from love, it's anger that's anger at brokenness and at sin and at suffering. And real love has anger. So what is sinful anger? Sinful anger is anger that's driven and it's full of self-righteousness and malice and revenge. It's not an anger that's actually longing for redemption and healing and beauty. It's anger that longs to see the other person hurt deeply. And if you want to know what good anger looks like, good anger is mixed with sorrow. If you want to know, well, then what kind of is the anger is the anger that's not sinful? It's the kind of anger that actually is sad that it has to exist. Sad that there's brokenness that we need to be angry at. Hosea is beautiful because God is frustrated with Israel, with how hurtful they've been to each other, with the greed and the corruption and how and the idolatry. And at the end of uh, Hosea in chapter 11, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. And he's just got, before this, he's got chapters and chapters and chapters of his fury. And this is what he says in chapter 11, verse 8. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Abma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, the, the, the people who don't know God? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. Good anger is anger that's mixed with sorrow. That's actually sad that it has to exist. Another mark of sinful anger is anger that controls you. That's why Paul says, don't go to bed on anger. Because it is powerful. And it can take hold of you. So be quick to resolve it. And if not, you're actually giving the devil a foothold. That's what he says. Because this kind of anger, if it hangs around too long, it takes root in you. And it grabs hold deep inside of you. And it begins to define you. Such that almost without knowing it, you kind of have this low-level bitterness or anger towards people. You're very easily just infuriated. You want to start to draw people in on your bandwagon of anger. And it's taking you over. And it breaks the the very thing that Jesus is aiming for, which is the unity of the family of God. So be angry, but be angry for the destruction of evil. Be angry and also be humbled. This is what I also think good anger is. Good anger is the kind of anger that's also mixed with humility because I know there are reasons people should be angry at me. I'm sad that anger has to exist and I'm sad that I'm one of the causes of anger. Good anger is anger that's actually compromised with sadness and humility. Exchange anger for control and exchange theft for generosity. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul talks about our stuff. Talks about our words, talks about our anger, talks about our stuff. And new life is one of generosity and not hoarding. And we want to make this metaphorical, right? Just have a generous spirit. But the reality is the way you actually relate to your physical stuff, that means the balance in your checking account and the stuff that you own really tells you where your heart is. 
who you allow access to your stuff tells you exactly about your posture towards generosity. If you want to know what you care about, look at your bank statement. Stuff was not intended to control us. Stuff was intended to be controlled by us. It was intended to be a blessing. And sharing stuff is sharing of blessing. And here's the, here's the cool thing. Guess what? Accumulating a ton of stuff, even more stuff than you need, is not bad. In verse 28, notice that Paul actually commends it. Right? This is awesome. This means, yes, you can aspire to buy a house in Tahoe. And I hope that you do. And I hope when you get a house in Tahoe, if you invite the Wood family. So let's stay in touch. <laughs> right? But he, he actually says that. So that... Do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So that he will have more. Having more is good. So that you can share. That's a great thing. Hoarding doesn't suit you anymore. Generosity suits you. Lastly, or second to last, we'll get through this quickly. Exchanging, tearing downwards for building upwards. Again, he comes back to words. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, this is where Christians get weird, right? We, we love to make rules. And so we hear, oh, the let no corrupting talk. Like, let's talk about those words that you're not supposed to be saying, right? And so I'm just going to read out loud all the words you're not supposed to say as a Christian. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Everyone's like, No. Paul doesn't give a list of words to not say. And he actually doesn't talk about specific words. He says he talks about what your words do. Don't let the kind of words that corrupt goodness come out of your mouth. But rather use words that build up. We want to make specific rules about specific words. And when you do that, you entirely miss Paul's point. Because you can avoid specific words and actually still really say things that really tear people down. Right? You can, be, you can live a G or PG vocabulary life and totally tear people down. Right? It would be easy to just simply say, if I avoid certain words, I'm doing what Paul's saying. But you're missing the point. Paul's saying, look behind your words. The words that you choose to use, what do they do? What do they do? Do they dignify people? Do they build people up or do they harm? And that's a lot harder work that demands a lot more honesty on behalf of the speaker. But this is a call to use words to build shalom, to build human flourishing. And that's far more complicated than avoiding certain words. And it may even be the case that certain words used wisely words that Christians can be notoriously legalistic about, can actually be used to bring shalom, to build and to dignify people in God's creation. That's possible. We can talk about that tomorrow at lunch, if you don't believe me. This one's hard. Use your words to build shalom. Lastly, so exchange tearing down words for building up words. Lastly, exchange bitterness for kindness. Bitterness is the poison that we drink, thinking it's going to kill them. Maybe you've heard that. It feels gross, but it's addictive. Isn't it fun to be bitter? But bitterness is a great lie. We think harboring bitterness towards someone is somehow going to vindicate us and punish them. All the while, all that bitterness is doing is poisoning us. And it's interesting that in between this language, in, in between his call to exchange tearing downwards for building upwards, 
And then also this call to run from bitterness and slander and malice. In between that, there's this, this uh, phrase, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. That in between bitterness and tearing down words, he says these kinds of things grieve, they actually make God sad. And the reason why is because, we all know this, is because words spoken poorly that tear people down, those words become stories. And stories become our identities. And this is why in my job and and among your friendships, what do you most often talk about? You talk about other people's words and what they did to you and how they've shaped your sense of self, your parents' words, your friends' words, your roommates' words. Words are very powerful. Right? They become our identities and they can wreck lives. Simple words. And so Paul says, exchange these kinds of words, bitterness and, and malice for kindness. Because what kindness does is it does the opposite thing bitterness does. Kindness actually heals you as well. The way you treat people actually works back on you. Mistreating people is formative. It works on you and it actually makes you a more hateful person. And you give bitterness a football a hold and it grows. But if you sow kindness into your relationships, you'll find that it's actually like a good pair of jeans. The more and more that you wear them, the better and better it fits. Until at some point, kindness feels less like something that you have to put on and it begins to feel like just who you are. That's what happens when you begin to grow into becoming the person that was already been declared in Christ. And how do we do it? Verse 32 is so important. Paul wraps his text in Jesus. You can't get away from the work of Jesus. Even in the midst of commands to fall on, he never lets us leave frightened or terrified with this, this difficult list of commands. The exhortation to new life is concluded with a reminder of love already established. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So you only begin to put together a life of truth and love, a life that actually fits you if you've experienced profound love, forgiving love, knowing that no shortcoming and no vice and no sin and no evil and no addiction and no narcissism, none of that condemns you. It doesn't produce the verdict over you because Jesus took the penalty Himself on the cross and in Christ you're forgiven. Even you. Even with the things that you're hiding that you don't think are safe to bring into the light, you're forgiven. Even with the ill-fitting, but my sins aren't the kind of acceptable sins in the church, even you. You're actually exactly the kind of person God wants in His church. That's what inception is. That's what new life is. It's the birth of a new love in us. So go and actually be free. And joyfully live a life that's more fitting for you. I'm going to just read this song and then pray that I love to sing. Um, It's written by William Cooper. It's one of the old songs we sing in RUF. But I hope you're finding an appreciation for some of them. But it's the struggle of obedience. And this is how it goes. He says, No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has she misapplies for want of clearer light. Saying, If I summon all the strength in my nature... Still can't serve the Lord the right way. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress, 
I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Again, I worked out, how do I obey? How do I do this thing, this new life? But I toiled without success. To abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. And now I feel the power of this sin. I feel it within, and I feel I hate it too. This is how he closes the song. But when I see the law by Christ fulfilled, and I hear His pardoning voice, it turns me from a slave into a child, and it turns duty into choice. Let's pray.